The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. John is the most amazing book. In the Bible, there's these occasions when you have these events take place where Moses, for example, in Horeb, it's where he saw the bush burning, but it didn't burn up. He saw this, it was light. There was light there. And then he heard this voice from heaven, and God says, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. That was Exodus chapter 3. So the Gospel of John is really far outstrips that. It's the most amazing book ever in the Bible, because it shows that Jesus is the perfect revelation of the Father. This is what the Father is really like. This book starts off by telling us that in the days of the emperor Tiberius and the tetrarch Herod, who were people that people knew about, Antipas, there was living in the land of Palestine a Jew whose name was Jesus, and he claimed that he was the rightful owner of all things. Everything belonged to him. He was the bread of life. He called himself the bread of life, the living water, the good shepherd who would give his life for his sheep, the one who would raise the dead in the last day, the very Messiah, the way of God. That's what he called himself, the proper object of faith and worship, a person so completely and in every sense divine that he was able to say, I and the Father are one thing. If you see me, you see the Father. And what's more, the author of the book believed the claims of of Jesus, what he said, And he gave him the most exalted kind of titles. John called him the Word of God. He tells us that this Word has been with God from all eternity, dwelling in the immediate presence of of the Father. And God sent him into the world so that we could see what God is really like, what he claims to be. And so Jesus himself is God incarnate. But who is this author who writes this book? Is he a total stranger or somebody who's far removed from the actual events? No, this isn't some guy who's compiling a bunch of legends. This is someone who spent his life with Jesus. He was one of his chief disciples of the Twelve, and he was with him all the time. He was a contemporary and eyewitness who saw and heard and touched this Jesus. One of his Twelve disciples, one of Jesus' Twelve disciples, was John the Revelator, and this is who he is. And so he had Twelve disciples. In fact, he's one of the three closest confidants of Jesus, one of his first two disciples. So he was very, very close to Jesus, and these things meant an incredible amount to him. No one knew Jesus better than John did. He walked with him from day to day, and he said things like, we have heard and seen with our eyes and beheld with our hands and handled the word of life. This is how he starts 1 John. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness. And then at the Last Supper, he he was reclining on the bosom of Jesus And at Calvary, he stood by the cross of Jesus. He entered his tomb. He went into the tomb to see if he was there. The very disciple does not shrink from proclaiming to all the world that this Jesus of history, whom he knew so well, is himself God. That's what Jesus said, and that's what he believed. So in the very first chapter, he introduces other eyewitnesses. He tells what they said when they first met him. And uh, for example, Andrew. Andrew meets him, and he says, we have found the Messiah. That's verse 41. Or Philip, we have found the one whom Moses wrote in the law and of whom the prophets wrote in verse 45. Nathanael said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And then John the Baptist, who came to be his witness, he says, I am not fit to unloose the straps of his sandals. Look, the Lamb of God. He's talking about look at Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
I have testified that this one is the Son of God. So the fourth gospel is a marvelous book talking about what God is really like in the person of Jesus Christ revealed. Uh, It's the fourth gospel, and it's like an art gallery containing the most glorious portraits of this one and only Son of God. He says that there wasn't enough room to write everything that needed to be written, but he says in John 20, verse 31, the reason for his writing what he did, he says, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is Messiah, the anointed one that the Old Testament spoke about. He's the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And the foyer of this this art gallery is found in verses 1 through 18. It's like an art gallery. He's, you're seeing posters of in movies, like going to a movie theater. You go into a movie theater, and you see all these posters that are telling you what the pictures are like. And it draws you in. And this is what happens to us in the Gospel of John. He summarizes how the Word, which was with God in the very beginning, came into the sphere of time, history, tangibility, so that the glory and grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed. And so this, the divine life is revealed to us in the first five verses. This is what he says in verses 1 through 5. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing has come into being which has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's really significant. The life was the light of men. In other words, this was God manifesting his life before all men in Christ Jesus. And he says in verse 5, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And the word comprehend has the idea it couldn't squelch it. It couldn't consume it. It'd be like shining a light into a very dark room and it gets consumed by the darkness. And he says that didn't happen. The light was predominant everywhere Jesus went. They could see the life of God being manifested in his kindness to people. The Pharisees got so angry at him because he treated people as the Father would treat them. He loved them. He showed them grace. And this is the witness of John that's found in verse 6 down through verse 13. He says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John, that is John the Baptist. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light, that is the light, the life of Jesus being manifested. I hope that makes sense, that the light of God is talking about the life of God being manifested, being lived out right in the midst of these people in darkness. He was not the light, that is John the Baptist was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. He wanted to explain what it was all about. That's why God sent him. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. The word enlightened means shines a light on them so you can see what they're really like. It's not talking about giving them illumination so they understand things, but rather so that we could understand what they really are. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. That's Jesus. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own things, that is his creation, and those who were his own, that is his own people, did not receive him. Now, the, the Bible is really clear that God owns all people, but the Jews especially are owned by God. They are God's people. And so that's what he's talking about. He's talking about this relationship that they have with God, that they were chosen people, chosen to reveal him to the world. And now Jesus comes to give the correct view and the correct understanding of who God really is. And he says, but as many as received him, those who believed upon him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So believe in his name 
that expression means name in Scripture is always the revelation of a person, what a person really is. And, and people wanted to name their children in such a way that when people heard the name itself, they would know what kind of person he was. And so he's saying that what Jesus did was he revealed the truth about God, and he wanted people to come to believe in his name, to believe in this revelation of who he was. And they were not born of blood, nor of the will of man, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is, they weren't born from a carnal craving, and they were not born by the will of the flesh. That is, humanity deciding what they wanted to do. They were not of the will of man, that is, the, the male. It wasn't because the husband decided he wanted a child, but it was because God, the God of the universe, wanted his son to come into this world to reveal who he was, so we would know who God the Father is. And the word was made flesh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we're told, in verse 14, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him, and he cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is of higher rank than I am, for he existed before me. This is John the Baptist saying this about Jesus. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. There's a song to that expression, grace upon grace. It says, grace upon grace like waves on a shore, always enough, always more. In other words, this was the great demonstration of God's grace. Uh, It says in verse 18, the very next verse, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. And only begotten means the the unique one-of-a-kind God, because he was the unique one-of-a-kind Son of God who was with him from all eternity. He says, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And the word explained is the Greek word exegesis. He's describing what it means, who Jesus really is and what he came to do. And then we have the testimony of John, beginning in verse 19. It says, this is the witness of John. This is how he testified to the Jews. He says, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He's talking about John the Baptist. And he confessed and did not deny that he, he confessed, I am not the Christ. So he tells him who he's not. He's not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. That's who he came to witness about. And they asked him, then what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, no, I am not Elijah. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They said to him, who are you? So that we may give an, an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he says, he quotes scripture, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now that they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah? Because the baptizing was an event that was spoken of concerning the last days. And so he said, if you're not the prophet who, who has come, or if you're not the one who was going to come and baptize in the name of Jesus, then who are you? And John answered and said, I baptize in water, but among you stands one who you do not know. He's talking about Jesus. They don't know Jesus. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. John the Baptist was baptizing people to prepare them for the coming of Jesus. And the next day it says, he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when they heard that, they understood that John was saying, You don't understand. This is the Lamb of God who has entered into the world to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And he says, This is he on whom behalf of, or behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is higher rank than I am. He existed before me. 
that is, he's eternal, and I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, and I did not recognize him. He saw this dove arrest on Jesus Christ. He knew this was the man that he had come to announce. And he said, I didn't recognize him at first, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason he baptized in the Holy Spirit is being baptized in the Spirit is what forms the body of Christ or the church. So we became members of the church when we were baptized into the body of Christ by being baptized in the Spirit. This is this was how our salvation it was initiated. The Holy Spirit was the source into which we were baptized, and he was the one who gave us salvation full and free. So again, the next day, it says, John was standing with two of his disciples, two of John's disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him, and they followed Jesus, because they understood that he was saying that this was the Lamb of God, and so they started following Jesus. And this, of course, was what John was supposed to do. He was supposed to announce who this Jesus was and why you should follow him. And so when they came up to Jesus, he said, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translates means our, my teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. They came and therefore they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two heard John speak and followed him and was Andrew, this is Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translates means the anointed one, the Christ. He brought them to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, but you shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now, we all know the story of Peter. Peter had promised Jesus that he would not doubt him. He would be faithful to him. And Jesus says, No, you don't know what you're saying, because before the cock crows three times, and a cock would crow whenever the sun came up. And he says, Before the cock has time to crow three times with the raising of the sun, you will have denied me three times. And this is exactly what happened, because pride always precedes a fall. Peter learned very early on that pride would not be a part of his ministry for Jesus. And we're told that Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses spoke of in the law, and also the prophets wrote about Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? How could you say this is the the Messiah when he's coming out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. You're not trying to hide anything. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answers him and says to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so this is the introduction to the the Lord Jesus Christ about whom this Gospel of John is written. It's written about this one who has come into the world to be the Savior of the world. 
And we're told in 1 John 5, 11 and 12, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. How did he give us eternal life? He says, this life is in the Son, that it's in Jesus Christ. And whoever has the Son has the life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So the way that we receive eternal life is by receiving Christ Jesus into our lives. And he becomes the source of this life that we live with, we live our entire lives with, as we have believed on Jesus. And so in the, in the first five verses, he reveals this divine life, the divine revelation of the word of his, his relationship to God. He, in the first two verses, he talks about that and how important it was that, that Jesus revealed the fact that he was related to God the Father. The Father himself was the one whom he has come to reveal. And then in verse 3, it talks about his relationship to creation. He created all things. Nothing came into being that did not come into being through him. And then in verses 4 and 5, he talks about his relationship to man. This, this one that's being described here is eternal. Where does this gospel story begin? Does it begin at the cross? Does it begin at his baptism? Does it begin at the virgin birth or the supernatural conception or the prophets like Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 was written in 740 B.C., that is 740 years before Christ came. And we are told that in Isaiah 53 that this was going to take place by a word of prophecy that Isaiah gave. In Genesis 3.15, it talks about the creation before the beginning of the universe. There was a man who became one of the godfathers of Jehovah's Witnesses, was Arius. And Arius was the one who said, there was a time when he was not. That is, Jesus Christ is not eternal. He came into being at a certain time. But John, the author of this book, says he is the word. He's the logos. He is the one that reveals the truth about God. The Old Testament background of this word, dabar, is of such that it means that it's the content. It is, it is the truth that we're wanting to hear and understand and believe. It is connected with God's powerful activity in creation. Because we're told in Psalm 33, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Because he spoke these things into existence, because his word was creative in his power, so the word of the Lord came to me, we're told in Jeremiah 1.4, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, and then, he, and then he talks about the deliverance, he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. The reason that God can heal is he can declare it to be true, and it becomes the truth. God's word is his powerful self-expression in creation and revelation and salvation. It's the perfect title for God's ultimate self-disclosure, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, the person of his own son. When it says he's the only begotten, it means he is the one and only, one-of-a-kind son of God. He has been with him from all eternity. He was with God, which is said in a way that implies intimate relationship. He was face-to-face with God, is what it says. He existed in closest possible fellowship with the Father, and he took supreme delight in this communion. The implications of him being the Word is he is a person that is distinguishable from God, but intimate with God. He's the expression of God's glorious, glorious person. He created all things, we're told in verse 3, that Lord Jesus Christ created all things, the eternal Son of God. He possesses life in himself. There's a technical term for that. It's called aseity. Aseity is the quality of God in the fact that he has life in himself. He doesn't need an emergency room. He doesn't need a respirator. He doesn't need something to keep him alive. He has life in himself. 
54 times in John and in 1 John, this word life appears, and it's always talking about spiritual life. You have to have this life to know God and his Son, we're told in John 17, 3. Because Jesus says there, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, that is your Son, whom you sent. And so this is who Jesus is. He manifests his life in all that he does. His life is called light because it is active. It's always being manifested. And so this idea of Christ's life being light means that he always manifests his life. Now, the NEB, when it says here, the darkness could not comprehend the light, it means it couldn't overtake it. It couldn't put it out, and it couldn't be seized. The New English Bible translates it that it did not master the light. The divine light displayed is given to us here in verses 6 through 13. The light was revealed in verses 6 through 9. It was rejected by God's people in verses 10 through 11, and it was received by those who did believe in verses 12 and 13. This light exposes every man, which doesn't mean that he, it illuminates every man so that they understand the truth, but it reveals what they really are. This light, when what we find in the text, it talks about the fact that those who were not believers didn't want to be around Jesus because they didn't like the light shining upon them because their deeds were evil. And uh, we're told that God so loved the world this isn't an endorsement of the world. It's an endorsement of God's love. It's not because the world is so big that it's stated that way, but because the world is so bad. In John, the world comprises no believers at all. There were no believers in the world. They have been chosen out of this world, we're told in chapter 15, verse 19. Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's what he says in John 4, verse 42. And so it says a great deal about Jesus, but nothing positive about the world. In fact, it tells us the world is in need of a Savior. The light must come into the world because it's not of this world of darkness. So he can't be in the world. He has to be separate from the world. The spiritual darkness of this world is utterly repugnant to God. We're told that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. But he sent the light into the world. He didn't destroy the world, but he sent the light into the world. And the glorious light that he sent was his own Son. How does he enlighten every man? Well, it means that he sheds light on them. He, he shows he reveals what they're really like, and they can see their need. They can see their need of the living Christ, the light, the true light. And he says that the true light shines on every man and divides the race. Those who hate the light flee because they do not want their deeds to be exposed by light. We're told that in chapter 3, verse 19. And those who receive the light are transformed by the light. This light shines upon men, whether he sees it or not, and it transforms us. We are, we are changed by the light. And we come to have a relationship with God that's brand new because the light changes us. We see this, this theme continuing on even in the book of Ephesians that this is what we have entered into as believers. We have entered into a sphere of light that God is manifesting his life in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have come face to face with the truth of who God is. And we are able to see his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we're told that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Now, I think most of us understand where that is. That was at Calvary. It was when sin was being judged by God in the person of his own son. At that same moment, Jesus was paying for our sins so that we could be made right with God. We could experience salvation and righteousness and truth through the work of Jesus Christ. So that's where sin abounded, but grace abounded all the more. We came into a, a state of salvation because 
Jesus was willing to go through the darkness for us and to experience the punishment for our sins so that we could be made right with God. And now we are witnesses. We bear witness of the truth of this light. We are supposed to be telling people about this glorious reality that Jesus is the light. He is the life of God, and he is the word of God, and he is the light of God that shines into our lives and reveals to us what we're really like. When we are confronted with the light, we turn in repentance and faith, and we put our trust in him. We see him for who he really is, and we believe upon him. And this changes everything for all eternity. So the light shines upon every man, whether he sees it or not. But those upon whom this light comes and rests is saved by it and brought into a right relationship with the living God, the God who is light. And so this passage is telling us there is great hope in Christ Jesus. And doesn't we don't have to diminish our our evil or our badness. We can we can come to him and say, uh, we're we're very broken, but we know that you're the Savior of men and women like us. We can put our faith in you and our trust in you because you came and did everything that was necessary to make us right with the living God. And that's what we want to pass on to this world. We want them to understand that the salvation and the gospel that we preach is not a gospel of good works. It's not a gospel in us telling you how you can live the perfect life, but it's a gospel that says salvation is a free gift to all those who believe and receive by faith. And that's what we want to do is to encourage people to receive this glorious gift by faith in Christ. Let me pray. Our Father, we're grateful for your loving kindness towards us. Every time we think about this reality of a gospel that tells us that Jesus did everything, that even on my worst day, what's really important is you have already done something for me in the in the gospel. I am so grateful for the love of Christ. We're thankful, Father, that we have a gospel that we can preach to any person, regardless of their past or present or future, that we know that you have a gospel that will save the lost. And Father, we pray that we'd be faithful in this assignment you've given us to proclaim the truth of the gospel to people who desperately need to hear it, the the gospel of the light that shines in the darkness. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.